Good evening, and welcome to the Bonafide Moto Show. I'm your host, Joe Fleming, also known as So Tall Right Now. And as you can see, I'm super excited for tonight's show. Not only because um, the other half of Bonafide Motoka is going to be on tonight, Alan Shenton, but that it kind of feels like tomorrow's like summer break. Um, been doing these shows um, three days a week. It's been so incredibly fun, rewarding, challenging, exciting, um, and I've I've been super grateful to been given the opportunity to have people on the show um, three nights a week from all over the world, and it's it's been like a great learning experience for me. I think in the beginning I kind of was just having fun winging it and. Um, as the guests started to come from all over and be people that are like really respected and, and uh, appreciated, I started to take it a little more seriously and prepping before the shows, researching each person and making sure I don't waste their time. And starting next week, we are going to be going to one episode a week, which will allow me for a lot of time to really get to know the person a bit beforehand and make it a really great quality show once a week. And we're trying to decide whether we do Wednesday night or Friday night. I kind of like the idea of uh, Wednesday night. It's kind of midweek and um, we'll see how we go. So if you've got thoughts on whether you'd like to see us on Wednesday or Friday, you can comment below. Um, this show has been ma been made possible um, for the past seven weeks by our partners at Motul, who um, have always been there for us with the MC Care range and with their support at all of our events. And starting sometime next week, you can actually get their products on our website. So we are starting an online shop next week now that e-commerce is back up in South Africa. Um, we'll start selling Motul products and our Bell helmets and a few other things on our website. Um, our other partners are Jack Black. So once this whole alcohol ban gets lifted, um, we'll have Jack Black all around at um, all of our events, however many that might be this year. Uh, Jack Black will be there, and they'll be here on the show every night. I'm out of Jack Black, so uh, this is brought to you by Roybos and the city of Joburg water. So how about that? Um, as always, you can catch each and every episode on our Apple podcast. We are currently running a competition with Bell Power Sports. If you just read our last post, all the rules are there, but you take a screenshot of our Apple podcast that you subscribed and you can win a Bell Moto, uh, a Bell Custom 500. And you can choose whichever color option you want um, that they currently have in stock. And um, you also win a Motul Classic T-shirt. And it's got, it's like an old, just go into our post. It's all there. Um, yeah, so fun times. Um, without further ado, Al, you know the drill, boy. Uh, also, anyone, if you've got questions for Alan and myself, um, you can just hit them below. Um, we are going to get to know a little bit about Al. I've got some questions for him. And then we're going to... Um, kind of open the floor um, to you guys if you've got questions. Uh, thanks, Davide. It's really nice. Um, 
Uh, if you've got questions as to what we're doing the rest of the year, um, let us ask. Um, we've got a lot of questions as well, um, but Alana are going to update you as much as possible as what you can expect for 2020. Alan, friend request. Oh, I'm nervous. <laughs> Hello. What's up? What's up, dude? Why is it that was so seamless? You know, I guess you know you know the drill, huh? Yeah, I updated my Instagram. Yeah, that's the that's the trick. So, uh, we I send out this little I call it my what do I call it tips and tricks uh, background and tips to everyone who joins on the show, and it basically is an almost flawless way not to mess this live stream up. And so far we've done good. And the one thing we learned was that people must date, uh, must update their Apple software for Instagram each and every time. And here we are, Al. Here we are. Yeah. How's, uh, how's the home life? Yeah, home life's good. I've just put Gemma to sleep. Um, hence okay. I'm wearing headphones. So okay. she doesn't have to hear your voice. She can just hear my yeah. voice. Um, but yeah, home life's good. It's been, uh, it's, I mean, I've, I've some elements of uh, lockdown I've enjoyed thoroughly, um, like spending so much time with my daughter and my wife mm. at home. Uh, it's been a lot of fun uh, getting to know each other um, properly yeah. and spending so much time, especially with Gemma um, at this age. I think it's really special to be able to do that. Um, yeah. So that's the positive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was actually one of my, one of my questions I had for you is that like, what is like, I've known you for years four or five years now of Alan and Liesl um, and no Gemma. And now you're a father and she's a beautiful, beautiful daughter. She's got such a beautiful smile. And like, what is, what is having Gemma in your life? Like, what has that done for you as, as a husband, as a father now, like as Alan, what has that been like? It was amazing. You know, it was something I was always nervous of, um, I guess, being a father, um, and it's been amazing. She's an amazing little girl and um, she's at such an amazing, like curious stage of her life. Um, I, I have my photo reel on my, on my phone is just, you know, I couldn't send enough photos and videos to the family and friends and everything. It's been really great. Um, it's an amazing opportunity and gift, I guess, to be a father. Um, so I've really enjoyed it. And what is, uh, what is like one thing about Gemma that you see, that you see in yourself, you see, what what's a piece of Gemma that you see of you? I, I think you know what I'm trying to ask. <laughs> she's super curious. Uh, she's super okay. curious and um, always investigating things and trying to like play with things. And you know, she's just figured out how to like. Um, she's got like a little cart that actually my uh, nephew Kurt pushed down at our wedding aisle, and now she's got that, and she can like walk up and down the passage. Um, and she's like figuring out the mechanics that she can turn it. And cool. um, she can also stand in it and use it like a push cart or like a skateboard almost. Um, okay. It's just amazing watching her figure stuff out, um, you know, and yeah. just like monkey see, monkey do. She watches us and she copies. It's amazing. Um, um, so, yeah, she's curious, which I love. And who's, uh, who's Gemma's best friend at the moment? Who's her, like, protector? Uh, that would have to be Bonnie and Timmy. Bonnie is our dog <laughs> and Timmy is a little toy. Um, oh. A little toy teddy bear that we got. Oh, cool! And, and uh, they're very good where friends. Where did the teddy bear from? That's a good question. I think actually, I think Timmy came from Keegan. 
Keegan oh, okay. gave us Timmy, I think. No? No, it didn't. I think uh, they on, gave us, so you know, Keegan, Keegan, you are on, and you gave us uh, Bun Bun. Um, I, I, I'm not, I don't name the, the animals. That's Liesl's job. <laughs> um, but I'm not sure where Timmy that. came from. <laughs> oh. oh, cool, man. Um, yeah, I think, like, you know, there's, there's a lot of pros and cons to the lockdown. And I could definitely see that's like, this is an important part of your daughter's life. And normally you'd be at work most of the time, the nanny would be there. And at least for these past couple months, you've been there and like been able to watch her grow and do all the, all those little things that you may have missed. So it's, yeah, for um, sure. has been quite special. Keegan said and, Bun uh, Bun is from her, Timmy's, Timmy's from someone else. Okay. So we don't know where Timmy's one. from. Okay. <laughs> it's all right. So Al, um, uh, like I said, I've known you for about four or five years, and I know Al the motorcyclist. Um, I've never got to really know Al from Zebra and Giraffe. And um, who who was Al 15 years ago? And what would what would your friend from like 15 years ago say say you were like? Is it the same Fif as this Al? 15 years ago. Wow. Um, no, I was 15 a, years ago. I was a I was a terrible I was a terrible little piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> I, I loved. I grew up listening to to punk rock mainly, um, and I, I was I, I was quite deep into like some sort of scene. I guess you could call it. Um, I've always always uh, been mad about music and always been mad about playing music. Uh, but I grew up around punk rock, and um, I, my my father died when I was very young, so a lot of my circle of friends were much older than me. Um, so I was the lucky kid, if you're talking 15 years ago, I was the lucky kid who got to hang out with my sister and all of her friends who were a number of years older than me. And um, they were all um, punk rockers. And that's kind of where my love of wanting to play an instrument started, uh, was in music um, and in punk. <clears throat> and we, you and I actually spoke about this on Wednesday. And um, I'm glad like, I can ask you, I didn't want to ask Liam on Wednesday, but like, I'd, the, I listened to, I'd say, a wide variety of music, and I really appreciate and enjoy it. And one element, one sort of area of uh, music I can't quite get into is punk rock. And what's, what is punk rock to you in like, that scene? Like, is it a bunch of vandals? Is it a bunch of like, punk kids who want to rebel? Like, what's, what was that scene kind of like? Um, I think there was, there's a couple elements that are like, there's, there's always been this element of brotherhood, um, which was kind of really overdone at points by like the straight edge punk rock scene. Uh, but there was always that element of like brotherhood. Um, and I think it was just like edgy and, and kind of, I mean, I was never really an anarchist at all um, to any extent, mm. um, but I loved how raw the music was and how underproduced it was. And ironically, I ended up playing in, in bands that did kind of the opposite, <laughs> um, but it was like kind of where, where my roots were. And if I think back um, to so many of my friends and so many people that I've played music with and so many people that play music today that I really, you know, appreciate and respect is they all had similar, similar, um, backgrounds in music so it was like really foundation stuff and it was just a, uh, like part of the times um you know early 2000s um that was what was doing the rounds and from there it went into like kind of a more alternative um kind of era and then from there into indie and i just kind of followed you know like if someone said to me now are you like a punk rocker definitely not i, 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 I battle to relate to a lot of 
that music um, now. But I find myself, if I look at my Apple Music playlists, um, they they tend to pay homage to my younger self um, more so than my current self. Um, okay. So I, I, I'm quite nostalgic about music. So when I want to listen to music, I often listen back. Um, that's not to say I can't enjoy you know the latest stuff i'm just not one of those people to go find it i rely on i, I rely on greg to do that he always sends me the latest yeah. greatest cool rock band um, but yeah. i kind of just always revert to to something from the past um no i mean uh, i i i kind of prefer the classics as well um but on occasion like i need some of that new stuff um but the classics are are amazing because i think they do sort of remind us of certain times of our childhood or like where we were and like who we were as a kid um a bit younger and um Indeed. when like you said you played in a few bands when did you like first pick up a guitar and sort of where did your passion for music uh, where did that start i first picked up a guitar i think i was about 11 12 years old um it was an acoustic guitar and i had a friend uh stephen polman and he played in a, a a band in South Africa called Flat World Society. Um, and they were like a, a, a emo punk band. Um, and my friend Colin, who you know as well, Joe, uh, played yeah. guitar in that band. And um, my mom went to most of my friends at the time were a lot older than me. And my mom went to Stephen and said, hey, would you teach Alan how to play guitar? And I think, I think my mom and him came up with an agreement like 20 rand per hour lesson or something like that. Okay. And um, I had an acoustic guitar um, and he taught me how to play guitar um, on a very basic level, um, you know, chords, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I probably went for lessons for about two or three years, um, every like once a week. Um, and I never took it like massively seriously. I was still mm. skateboarding. Um, I was skateboarding like endlessly every day, all day, if not skateboarding, riding a bicycle. Um, I used to work as well. I was like a child's laborer. I used to work on the weekends. Um, okay. And so I was like super busy and I kind of never like gravitated towards like wanting to be a musician. I just thought it was really cool. And when I saw people on stages or if I saw something on TV, I thought like, wow, that's amazing. I want to, I want to be a rock star. Or I want to hold a guitar like that and jump up and down mm -hmm. on stage. Um, and then a circle of um, friends at, at school uh, slightly older than me, um, Eric Wright and, and, and some of his friends had a band called Minority. Um, and it was kind of early emo pop punk band. And um, I was, I don't know actually how it came about, but somehow I ended up in the band um, and I actually posted a photo on, on Wednesday that I found on my phone. Um, probably one of the first photos of me playing guitar. Um, and yeah, I joined that band and it was, it was literally what we would call um, in music, like a four chord wonder band. We literally had these four chords that we'd play in different variations. And okay. uh, we had kind of like a, a, a whiny vocal that was a bit emotional and uh, we thought we were pretty cool and we jumped up and down on stage and we played at like local churches and that was, <laughs> that, that was us. But it's, it's funny because it, it's, it's like very primitive if I think back, but it actually introduced me to uh, some of my greatest friends, some of the greatest people I know. Mm. And um, for example, we were, we were lucky at the time to, to produce an album with Daryl Tor. And uh, after producing the album with Daryl Tor, that kind of has been a big part of my career since then. Uh, because after that, I joined, I mean, I did that for a number of years um, and we, the band kind of just filtered out. And then I joined a band called Harris Tweed, which Daryl was the bassist of and he had produced. And I played in Harris Tweed for probably 
two two odd years, I think. Um, and Harris Tweed became a band called Dear Reader, and they moved overseas. And then um, roughly about the same time, um, I had been asked to play in a band called Cassette, which was a uh, fairly successful South African band at the time. Um, really, uh, uh, like, a, I guess, indie pop band. Um, and Greg, I had just met Greg at the same time. So the okay. two opportunities came up and I was... I was definitely gravitating a lot more to um, Zebra and Giraffe, but the cassette opportunity gave me an amazing opportunity to travel. Um, and I went to Japan um, for three weeks on a tour uh, with them. And so I took that opportunity to do that because um, it afforded me um, an opportunity to play quite a lot, both overseas mm -hmm. and locally. Um, and then at the same time, um, the Zebra and Giraffe project got off the ground and I joined that. And then I did that for... Um, I think about eight or nine years in total. Um, we did that uh, at a very kind of high level professional uh, state. Um, and then, yeah, that's where I am now. <laughs> yeah. And I see, um, you know, I think one of, one of the things I always enjoyed about the music in my younger, uh, I guess, teens was like the music videos um, that I would see on MTV. I think that was like one of the things after school I would just go and watch. Um, and I see like on YouTube, uh, Zebra and Giraffe has, you, know, you guys have, I'd say quite a lot of music videos. Um, what was, I'd say like, what was one of your favorite videos that you guys produced? Um, like what song was it? And tell us a bit about it. You know, so I was a, I was a video editor and I was into video myself. Um, and Greg was a, I mean, he studied fine arts and he's got an incredible eye. He's a really creative dude across the board, music writing um he really is a, a super creative dude and and we like to get involved probably much to our producers and record labels uh, dismay <laughs> um so we actually produced so the first music video was um uh, was it only had greg and it was called the knife um but after that we produced or were involved in the production of pretty much all of our music videos to some extent um and i think our third music video, which was called Oxymoron, um, my business partner, partner at the time, Marcus, uh, is a really talented photographer, and we shot um, that video together, um, and I, I edited it, my sister graded it, Marcus shot it, um, and Greg kind of uh, directed it, and then since then, pretty much every video we did, we were involved in some way, um, mm -hmm. and I can tell you we learned some very interesting lessons in doing that. Um, some of the uh, most difficult days of my life <laughs> uh, have hands down being trying to produce your own music video in your own band. Um, wow. And some of the, some of the greatest things I have been part of have been visual um, elements of music. So it's been yeah. really rewarding, but I think my favorite video that I was part of that was very difficult was um, um, I can't even think of the name now. <laughs> I'll have the to silo, come. The one with the silos. No, 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 no. Um, it's from The Wisest Ones. That's the album. I just can't think of the track. <laughs> no, you've caught me off guard. Uh, <laughs> but it was produced by our friend Warwick Allen. Um, and it was okay. actually, it was an amazing story. Um, we got to shoot in a, um, I guess it's like a steel forge in Pretoria. And there happened to be one day of the year that the steel forge was going to be in operation and we managed to secure that single day to shoot that music video in there. And oh, these wow. steel forges uh, run all the time. I mean, actually, even now during lockdown, steel forges have continued running because uh, the ability, once you turn them on 
and you get the furnaces going, you can never really turn them off. It costs too much money. But these guys were doing maintenance or there was some there was maintenance to some major supply line. So they had shut down this entire steel forge for the day. And we got to shoot this crazy music video in that space. And it was super in, industrial looking. Um, the song's called I'll Blame You. Oh. <laughs> I, I really want it. that won't work you obviously yeah. haven't heard me sing or hum yeah, you, i don't think Werner remembers that you weren't the singer that was great <laughs> but it uh, would so be nice to hear him it. <laughs> if, if if you if you if you can find the video go check it out because it, 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 it's a cool story to think that that was shot in that environment and we um we worked with a crazy um lighting and stage kind of wardrobe designer martin and he had some crazy ideas and, and we did a lot of green screen work so there's like there's oh, all these cool. monsters in the room and there was actually only two of them or one of them but um it looked like there was 40 of them and they were going to attack us and kill us on stage but it was a lot what of fun to name? shoot the name of it what was the name of it again i'll blame you okay okay and um um and one of the outside of you Outside of you being in a band, um, when I first met you was um, another thing that I appreciated about you was your love for the Kruger. Um, like moving here from the States, I, I didn't know anything about the Kruger. I didn't know a lot about Africa. And I think moving here, I was very excited. And like, and I'm still very curious about traveling into like Botswana and Namibia and finding out about the, about the Kruger. Um, where did your love for the Kruger come from? Where did that, like, I know you've been going there a lot. Um, where did that all start? Yeah, it came from my parents. My, um, my dad came from England. He wasn't born in South Africa. And he actually, when he arrived in South Africa, he arrived in uh, Algoa Bay, PE, where pretty much a lot of the Brits arrived. And they, they worked in tool and dye factories. And that's where he met my mom. Um, and then they had an opportunity to move up to Pretoria. Um, and when they moved to Pretoria, one of the first, I mean, that's one of the things that people that live at the coast miss is access mm. to the bush. Um, yeah. And when, so when he moved to Pretoria, one of the first things he did with his buddies on a weekend was get an opportunity to go to Kruger. Um, so like three and a half hours from Pretoria to Malalan Gate, and they were in Kruger. And um, I actually read a, a, like a journal entry or a note that he had written to his sister recently. And he, and he talks about that weekend and he mm. absolutely fell in love with it. And he, and he, and he talks about how going to Kruger would like changed his life. And basically yeah. since then, my mom and my dad went every single year, twice a year, uh, autumn and spring, uh, religiously. Um, and they never missed, uh, they never missed an opportunity to go to Kruger. It was the only kind of holidays we did um, for ever. Um, and we've managed to like maintain that. Um, I think my mom tells stories of me and my sister going at, we were the first time we went to Kruger, we were about three months old, um, on different trips. So we've been in Kruger as the earliest we can. And we, you know, some people would say like, Oh, but didn't you get bored sitting in the cold day? Cause Kruger's a, a very different kind of holiday. You do really spend a lot of time either in a tent or in a car. Um, but I guess they just instilled that into us from such a young age. Um, so I like to think of that I'm very privileged to have spent so much time in Kruger. I know it really well. Um, 
I know roads, I remember trees, you know, I remember we drive past a tree <laughs> yeah. in a certain area and I'll be like, remember we saw a leopard in that tree last year? Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. it's something that's, um, we've already um, instilled in Gemma. We've been to the bush um, roughly when she was three months older as well, um, into the greater Kruger area. And we were actually going the week that lockdown started um, with it for a big family trip. Um, I had family coming from overseas, from Australia and from America, but um, that didn't happen. So we'll have yeah. to, yeah, we'll have to go hopefully this year still. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully yeah. you do. It's really, and I mean, uh, it's for those that have been, and I think most people have, it's, it's, there's nothing like it in the world. It's really special, um, incredibly wild, um, an amazing constitution around conservation, um, really forward thinking about how they deal with conservation. And because of how large it is, it's just this, it's, it really is so wild. Um, there's parts of Kruger that no one will ever, no one will ever see. There's no roads that take you there. And I think that's so amazing because it really allows conservation and wildlife to do what they need to do. They need space. Mm. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, I remember my first time there, I was like, this is like, this is Africa. Like, it's it's so wild and it's it's just so it's so special and like I, I don't know how many times Mona and I have gone now like four, three or four times and and like I really look forward to going back because it's a it's a special place and I look forward to exploring a bit more north. Um, not yeah, Liesl and I actually did a trip last year or two years ago. Um, yeah, two years ago now. No, no, sorry, last last year. It was when Lisa was, I remember she was quite pregnant at the time, but we went from north to south. And I've done that with family before. Um, and then we did it, just the two of us, and we, we joined friends of ours along the way. But, um, you know, from an affordability point of view, where could you go for 14 nights in South Africa, mm -hmm. um, whether you're camping or staying in the chalets, it really is one of the most affordable holidays that you can have um, super peaceful and yeah i mean i've also i've also heard the opposite you know people say oh, i went to kruger and i drove from north to south and i didn't see anything um there's Shame, nothing in, there's nothing in kruger you know mm -hmm. um but i think if you're in love with the bush it's it's more about um it's more about appreciating everything about it it's not about the big five it's not about animals yeah. entirely it's it's about the whole experience um mm. it's a really incredible place to to spend time yeah, it's um, yeah. I think like when I first went, uh, I wanted to see the big five, and um, I think w when when you and I were in Swaziland, I made some rep similarity or reference to being in the bush. And actually, it's not always about seeing the big five. It's about being able to look at the birds and appreciate them and enjoy like the small things. Um, and that's what Kruger and just the bush in general allow you to do. Um, yeah, look, the chase of finding uh, finding Big Five is is incredible, um, and no mm. one can ever deny that it's it's like a really special experience when you do that and, you, and you're successful. And um, I've also had the privilege of spending a lot of time on private game reserves in the Greater Kruger area, uh, which is mm. a very different experience, um, and it's super rewarding when you do find those animals. But it's it's not the the sole reason why we go. Um, you know, I've learned so much over the years about everything in the bush, grasses, trees, birds, uh, Liesl's crazy about birding. So that's also like, um, we went on honeymoon to Botswana for 
two weeks and um Botswana is a different kind of game viewing. Um, so Botswana is, in certain areas are known for big game, but it's not really, um, you know, you don't go there to find a certain leopard in a certain region. You just go there because it's an incredible four by four territory. Uh, but one thing that kept us on those 14 days, one of the things that kept us like completely addicted was birding. Look, <laughs> um, we're definitely not going to stop and wait about half an hour to find a special bird. But um, I think Liesl downloaded as we drove across the border, into um, uh, Martin's Drift and to Botswana, uh, she quickly downloaded the Sassel eBirds app and it was our first time that we practiced birding and we marked over 180 species, I think, on that trip and we loved it. Um, so between the birds and the animals and driving and 4 by 4 and and the sunsets and sunrises, <laughs> it's my perfect holiday. Yeah, that's, that's a busy trip. <laughs> yeah. Just spotting 180 birds like that, that's a, that's a lot. <laughs> Um, and um, outside of the Kruger, what is um, what would what would be your dream four by four adventure to take in Africa with your family? Wow, good one. Um, I don't know. Um, I've never been to Namibia. Well, I have, but only through the Caprivi. Um, so I've, I've gone into Caprivi three times, three different occasions, um, but mainly just for travel. Um, for, the, for those that know Botswana, often you go into Caprivi to get around the delta to come back from the other side. Uh, so I've never gone to Skeleton Post. Um, and from there all the way up to Angola is, um, you know, uh, I see those photos where you see the, um, the, the, the really steep dune and then there's a small piece of beach and then the tide coming up. Um, yeah. I don't know what the area is called, but it's just as you go into Angola. And basically on that on that road, you wait for the tide, you stack up 40 or 50 vehicles. And as the tide pulls out, you start you start getting the vehicles across. Um, and that's definitely a dream kind of destination um, or, or yeah. tour for me to do um, in a four by four. Yeah, that looks um, that's that's what I, I, I think of Namibia. Um, I saw like other parts of Namibia, but to me, I really want to drive on the beach and go up through those areas. And seeing Werner comment again, I think it was last week's episode, he was speaking of Namibia. And, yeah. um, you know, you and I have been speaking about Namibia quite a lot the past couple of years in terms of motorcycles as well. Um, there's definitely um, a demand and a, and a huge desire for people to go and travel there because it's, you know, like after seeing Mersha's trip there, that place looks so remote and you can really get away and you can really see some um some really beautiful and special things there yeah yeah it is uh, my brother-in-law spent a lot of time there and um it's yeah i mean even this even the, the big towns um are incredible in namibia um mm. so yeah that's definitely something that i need to explore more of outside of the caprivi um which is very similar to botswana and surrounds um yeah. And motorcycles, what's, uh, so I, I kind of, I kind of know your background, but how long have you been riding and what was, uh, what was your first bike? Uh, I've been riding for, since 2014 only, 2013, I got, sorry, 2013, I got my first bike. It was a Royal Enfield. Um, growing up with a single, as a, you know, the single parent, my mom was never too keen on me getting onto a motorcycle. Um, uh, some of my friends at the time had dirt bikes, but that wasn't an option for us. Um, it was like, no way. Um, so I kind of always liked motorcycles. 
Um, I always, I, I always kind of had a dream of maybe being a Formula One driver, but I definitely didn't have the money to do that. <laughs> um, but I liked, I liked the danger that that kind of two wheels uh, elicited, and um, I really wanted to have a motorcycle at some point. And then music really took over my life for a number of years, um, from when I was eighteen. Um, that's all I did, and. Um, yeah, I had a photo of my dad that um, my mom had in, in one of our picture albums, and it was him riding a aerial Colt 350cc. And uh, it took me a while to figure out what motorcycle it was. I've only done that in recent years. But um, I saw the bike, and I was like, wow, that's so cool. That's my dad, and he liked motorcycles, and he grew up in, in Birmingham in the 1960s. It's like Ace Cafe, um, Cafe Racer. Um, mm. And at the time, the, the motorcycle that I – found that most resembled that that was available was a royal enfield and they had just released the um 500 cc bullets fuel injected uh, motorcycles and there was a dealership in germiston i was living in edenvale at the time and i was like let me go check it out and they were super affordable and um, i'm so grateful for that journey into motorcycling because it was it was the right way and i think you were actually talking about it with liam yeah. on wednesday like um was I going to ride a Royal Enfield forever? No. Um, but did it put me on the right path? Definitely. Um, it was fast enough to enjoy and get into trouble, but it was slow enough so that I, I had a kind of gradual um, yeah. ease into riding. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I quickly did my learner's license. I went to the dealership to pick it up. I rode it. They had a, a it's at Classic Motorcycle Club in Germiston, and they've got like a, a little bowls club. And I rode it once around the bowls club, and I paid them, and I put it onto my brother-in-law's <laughs> truck and I drove it home. I'd never ridden a motorcycle, and that was that. And so oh. I took my learner's license, and eventually went and did my my, dry, well, my rider's license. Um, and I think outside of lockdown and a couple of holidays here and there where I've been in the vehicle, there has not been a day since 2013 where I haven't ridden my motorcycle. Um, I'm, I, I became completely obsessed with it. I commute. Uh, then she sold my, my car that um, my wife and I shared that we had a car each and just didn't make sense. We thought, well, we'll rather have a nicer vehicle and I can have the bike instead of having two average vehicles. Um, and yeah, I ride every single day. I love it. Um, I've had a couple of motorcycles since then. Um, I, I had a, uh, after the Royal Enfield, I traded it um, at Nick um, for a black T100 Bonneville, which was really more resembled what I was into and what I was interested in. Um, but it was a huge jump riding a real motorcycle. Um, yeah. um, and unfortunately, I had a, a, had a bad accident and wrote that off. Um, and then I had another Bonneville and then I found the Street Scrambler um, in 2017. And that's what I've been riding since, um, which is my absolute favorite and perfect bike for me um I, I can't see myself changing that for any reason mm -hmm. and what's your thoughts on uh people saying that uh, uh they prefer a bigger bike over a smaller bike well <laughs> yeah i guess you know some people that some people it works really well for like in your in your situation it's about height um so smaller bikes are lower lower to the ground and it doesn't suit you you end up with your knees on the side of the of your of your ears um, but I've always found the smaller bikes when I have climbed on larger bikes, 1200s or, or larger, um, I've always found that I'm a lot more nimble, um, on the smaller bikes. Um, and I've kind of always joked with you guys, as you know, as I'd rather be the fastest guy on a 900 than 
uh, a less capable or slower guy on a 1200. And that's not about speed, but it, it's, it's often about um, how well suited you are to a bike. And when the 1200 Triumph Scrambler came out, I was, I was like, oh, I'm getting it. You know, I'd seen the press picks and I was like, that bike has what the 900 doesn't have, suspension and some cool tech where I can put my phone plugged in and all this other cool stuff. And then when it came out, I was kind of like, I was, I was very near to, ready to like take it seriously. And I just decided, no way, my, my bike is too perfect for me. It, it fits me beautifully. I'm not, I'm not short, but I'm not, I'm not very tall. So to go onto a large bike like that and get into trouble um, on Sony Pass where I can't put my leg down and so on and so forth. Yeah. And really the, the suspension and the tech um, and all the other beautiful things that that motorcycle comes with are really all just distractions for me to enjoy the ride less. Um, yeah. And even going from the Bonneville to, this, to the liquid-cooled Scrambler, um, there's already enough distractions there. You know, it's traction control off, ABS oh, yeah. on and off, and all that stuff. Um, it's all really unnecessary. You know, I love, I love the simplicity of it. Um, and, and I love the simplicity that my Royal Enfield gave me. Um, and um, do you think you would, like, is, is there another bike that you would want? Like, besides your, besides your classic, is there another bike that you would want? Or are you, like, happy with that? You know, I haven't seen a motorcycle since those bikes came out that appealed to me as much. Um, I, I did. There's a couple bikes that I kind of like, and you know, I rode the I rode uh, the Husqvarna, um, the little pocket rocket cafe racer. Oh yeah, it was a lot of fun, and like the brakes were amazing, and the styling's pretty cool. But it just doesn't speak to me holistically. It's a it's an incredible little commuter. Um, it's an incredible uh, looking bike and it's really like a pocket rock. It's the perfect description for it. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't appeal to me holistically. Um, it doesn't have all of the things. It doesn't look classic enough. It doesn't perform modern enough. And for me, the Triumph is just that sweet spot. It's, um, yeah, it's it really is sweet. just that sweet spot. Um, yeah, it's, it's nice to, um, you know, I, I think a, a lot of people and their dogs like complement each other. And I think a lot of people in their bikes complement each other. And it's cool when you can see someone who like, who him and their bike like really suit each other. Um, and, and you and your 900, like it's a perfect fit um, to, to watch you when we go to Sabi hitting the twisties, like it, I, I couldn't see you on anything else. And it's sort of the same with Colin on his like big, um, what do we call it? The Johnny Cash uh, Harley. Uh, the ro Road King. Yeah, it's perfect. Perfect. Like it's a great, um, it's a great matchup of bikes, you know? It's not a Road it's King. Good. I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know about Harleys. Sorry. It's oh. Ultra Glad, Glad, King, no. Sportster, Long oh, Pops. No. Um, it's a Road King? No, it's some type <laughs> of Road King. Deluxe. I can't remember. I I think maybe if Colin's still here, he'll let us know. Yeah, um, Colin, the road queen. <laughs> road queen. Oh, deluxe. There we go. Deluxe. It's a deluxe. There we go. Okay. Oh, thanks, babe. That's kind. Um, so, um, does anyone else, does anyone have questions for Al? Um, we've got just over 15 minutes, and um, I think we'd, we'll, we'll talk about what we can for Bonafide, I think. Um, me and uh, Alan and myself have been chatting quite a lot over lockdown. And, you know, we, I think we had, what, one night in the dirt planned. Uh, Cape Town would have been last weekend. We had Sony Pass planned. 
Sunrise so Scramble. Coming up. Sunrise Scramble. Um, it's all kind of on hold. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the reality of the current situation, um, Joe and I were very lucky to squeeze in a trip to Swaziland with Scott. Uh, just we got back the weekend before lockdown. Um, and then we were fortunate enough to squeeze in uh, one night in the dirt. Uh, but pretty much everything from then is is on hold. Um, will will we still do it? Of course, we'll still do it. Will it happen in this year? You know, that's I guess that's the question. Um, it's it's unlikely that the international uh, travel will return, um, and I'm not yet to debate whether that will happen or not, or whether it should happen or not. But um, from a planning and logistics point of view, it's almost impossible to 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 plan and book uh, the accommodation and get get everything together. Um, Ted delicious. I mean, I think the the answer to that is probably going to be Swaziland because of the time of the year. Um, and if not, Swaziland um, as a kind of overland trip, the main trip will be Sabi Bubble Run. Um, that is really what we're putting all of our effort into. Um, it is the 12th of December this year um, because it kind of um, ends uh, nicely with the public holiday being on the 16th. So kind of all roads head to um, to Sabi Bubble Run 2020. Mm. Um, it will happen. Yes, I agree, Barry, it will happen. And um, I think it's going to be a great event um, for lots of people to join. Um, and after a year that everyone's had, I can confidently uh, kind of put uh, preparations in place right now. And uh, in fact, we did. Last week, Joe um, reached out to um, Sabi River Camp and we've made the booking. So we're ready now for chalet number one, chalet number two, chalet number three, um, and potentially all the chalets. <laughs> I think probably all the chalets. <laughs> yeah. I think for, for a lot of the newbies that we had last year, um, it's, it almost seems to kind of be a trend where um, people camp their first year and then they're like, I ain't camping. Again, I'm taking the chalet. So there'll be more chalets this year and um, I'll still be in the rooftop tent uh, I'm assuming, Al, you'll still be in your tent. Um, but, you know, one thing is is for sure, it, well, pretty for sure is that there will be the bubble run and we will open that up to a lot more people. I think, you know, like Al said, after the year we've all had, that'll be one hell of a Christmas party. Um, the dates at the moment are December 12th through the 16th. Um, we're going to open up more games. Hopefully we've got more infrastructure like a bar, um, we'll, we're going to pull out all the stops. I mean, we've got to. It's only one event that's sort of for certain this year. Yeah, it'll yeah. Be, it will be our one event. So we're going to put all the energy, effort, time <laughs> and money into one. that event. Um, um, and I think everyone that did come last year really enjoyed the Motul Motor Games. And that was like a new addition. Mm. Um, and I think this year the Motul Motor Games will take center stage. So yeah. we've got a lot to do. Um, I have secretly made a deal on a, um, a hill climb, um, which I haven't spoken to you about yet, Joe, but we need to make that happen. <laughs> okay, cool. So hill climb will be there. Um, we're going to have tons of fun. And uh, whoever's got uh, a bunch of little pocket rockets, they need to send them over our way so we can uh, really have fun. Um, I see Werner, and he actually reminds He's. I mentioned, he told me the other day, he's got a 10 by 6 meter stretch tent that is available for us to use at the bubble room. So Verna, thanks. As we start planning 
um, I think we'll try to take advantage of that. Um, Kobus, uh, you'll you'll be uh, you'll like to know that I've found a Johannesburg supplier for those pellets, and I bought <laughs> six. Funny. I bought six bags last week, so all all good. We're in control now. Um, um, I got a question from someone on here, um, and this is something that Alan you and I've been, we've been talking about for years. Um, any plans for the bona fide shed? like bike shed kind of vibe you know in in the current climate um i would have to say hell no <laughs> uh, because i think uh, something like the bike shed or the bona fide shed um the reality of these places um as much as they are about the community is that they from a revenue point of view they really do rely on um food and alcohol sales um you've got to run a really successful restaurant you got to really run a really like shit hot bar um, and you've got to run them at very good margins to make them successful. And that's really what funds the, the rest of the business model. Um, so in the current climate, I would feel like really nervous to do that. You know, I mean, sure. I think so many restaurants at the moment are desperate to get out of their leases. Um, they're walking away from their leases. And that's not to say that this, this time won't be over. Of course, it will be over. Um, and obviously, with what's left, there'll be, definitely be an opportunity to, to start something. Um, and to pick up something new. Um, I love the idea of a shed, a, a general location, but I don't like the idea of a club. Um, I think I think in some ways that's it's um, it's not inclusive, and that's that's a problem. Um, one of the reasons, one of the things that I love about what we do is that it is inclusive um, and yeah. it's not exclusive. And I never want that to be the situation. Um, so for me, like a good bar where people can go and hang out at and enjoy um, and it's not centered around a club mentality, I think is, a, is, is amazing. Um, and yeah, I've, it's always been a dream of ours um, to own something like that and to run something like that. Uh, but I think the reality of running a restaurant is very, I mean, it's, it's a really romantic idea. You know, everyone's like, Oh, I yeah. want to do this. <laughs> and I think I can cook and he thinks he can make an old fashioned. So let's put this uh, together. But, um, yeah, Alan, I think... and I've gotten, um, Alan and I've gotten <laughs> close to, uh, having a concept like that in place, uh, in Johannesburg. And we got so far as to, uh, me actually speaking to Mona, that's, my job may change into working at a bar, restaurant in the evenings, something that we would own. And that's, that was a, that's a fucking tough pill to swallow. Um, for me, I it really should always be, that. for me, it should always be that community is greater than buildings. Um, so a building or a location comes and goes, but um, community, can too, stay for, community can stay forever. Um, and I think that's that's the goal of Bodafide is to focus on the community. Um, and we hope that the community continues to get larger um, and appeals to more uh, men and women and um, and also non-motorcyclists. You know, um, yeah. I, I love I love how many people have joined uh, motorcycling through enjoying coffee with us. Um, and, yeah. and that's kind of like if you look at someone like Uncle Rich, ride motors, take photos. Um, he joined us for coffee on a motorcycle, um, and and now he's he's completely immersed in the community in its entirety. Yeah. So, Vanna, I think a simple question is: the likelihood of there being a physical building? No, but the the continued investment and development of a community, one hundred percent. And um, the other thing that Alan and I've been kind of you know planning is, is sort of as much as we can. Um, during this time is focusing back on um, once the lockdown lifts is our Saturday morning rides 
um, you know, to be kind of open and honest, we we used to have a meeting every Saturday morning, and I think it became uh, quite a lot. And it also was started to become more about the breakfast spot and about just meeting for breakfast. And it actually, um, for me at least, um, it was less about the riding. And um, one thing that I have been very grateful for over the past week of being able to get my bike back on the road and making deliveries is actually riding. And, you know, I've now gone to Pretoria twice. I, I really, I don't care to go there that much, but just being able to ride has been so great. And so um, we are planning on uh, kicking back up Saturday morning rides. Once the lockdown lifts, we'll meet for coffee for maybe an hour or so in the morning, and then we're gonna ride out of town. Um, and then we'll focus on sort of a long ride and um, and a lunch, a sort of brunch, lunch spot, so that you know we start to familiarize ourselves again with the roads out there, and not just sitting around getting cold at breakfast. Um, I'd much rather get get cold on the road than sitting there in the shade. So um, that is what's coming from us once the lockdown is lifted and we can um, gather in groups again. Which there's an interesting question here. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure how the handle, but the handle is Ramiz Hanslow. Oh, Ramiz, yeah. Um, is there any place where we, our members get together to work on their bikes? So firstly, we, we really don't uh, run a membership at all. Um, anyone's welcome. And secondly, um, I, I don't work on my bike. <laughs> Go to Verna. Go to Verna. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but we've got, uh, there's a lot of people on this, uh, this group, uh, on this live stream right now that are very capable of working on bikes. Um, and so... <laughs> Yeah, I might work on my own bike at home, but uh, in general, I would just send to the pros. So we can go to the pros and then we can kick tires there. Um, that's how we do it. And um, uh, <laughs> uh, and who's um, who's who's <laughs> who's Sharky? Who's Sharky? Yeah. Well, Sharky's my alter ego when I when I have one too many um, beverages. Okay. Um, alcoholic beverages um often my pants come off um generally they do <laughs> um, <laughs> why not but yeah Sh sharky's an alter ego um and i i think it actually i think greg greg gave me that name he um we were in a um we were in a club in we had played a show somewhere in george i think and we'd, we'd all just gotten really smashed and I was running around the club and he said that my eyes looked, it was like a shock, like I was glazed over <laughs> and I was just like, I don't know, that's where, that's where the name came from, but it's definitely, it's definitely stuck. Um, I mean, I, I can't, I can't have one too many beers without someone mentioning it. Yeah. Oh no, so, there yeah. he is, there he is. Yeah. I think everyone's seen it. Um, yeah, he's, he's a, he's a tough, he's a tough chap. Yeah, he's fun. Mm -hmm. He's fun. Um, and then uh, another question that I just got is, what's the story behind the, the CB350? Before I answer that, Ramiz, um, on, on this, on this uh, chat, there's a gentleman called Van underscore Explore. Um, there's also a bike shop in Edinburgh called, uh, and the handle's Nick underscore Traditional Moto Co. You can check them out um, online. Both of them have, are very knowledgeable and both have amazing workshops. Um, so yeah, just you guys connect. Um, if not, we'll help you guys connect. But um, th these guys had a lot to learn. Uh, the deal with the CB350 was um, Liesl, my wife, has uh, often joined me on the back of um, my motorcycle uh, when we ride around town. And um, 
she but she always wanted to be in control. She always wanted to actually, actually be able to ride a motorcycle. So mm. a couple of years ago, we started looking and I just wasn't able to find anything that was suitable. And then it was, we were approaching our first anniversary, um, our first wedding anniversary. And uh, uh, Marnit Fenter actually, um, who's another guy you can speak to, <laughs> Ramiz, um, he sent me a message on a, on a group that I'm on called Classic Enthusiasts. And he was like, hey, check out this CB350. Uh, perfect little bike for Liesl. And I was like, damn, that's mm. it. So I quickly screenshotted it, got the guy's phone number, phoned him. He was a great dude to deal with, although it was a Facebook sale. He answered my call, I negotiated on the deal, and he said, cool, come fetch it. Um, and I phoned another buddy of mine, Tim Romans. Um, Ramiz, if you have a Honda, Tim Romans is your dude. Um, mm. And uh, he said, cool, I'll meet you there, and we can put it on the back of my bucky, and we can have a look at it. And Obviously, you do these deals, and I was very grateful for the price I paid. But when I got there and I saw the bike, I was like, "Oh, there's a lot That's of work." Um, and and it and it wasn't a basket case. It's it wasn't mm. it wasn't a rust rocket or anything like that. It was it was in decent condition, uh, but it's been a long, slow journey. Um, I think anyone that's ever restored a motorcycle will appreciate how long and slow it is. Um, uh, everything was there. The motor was there. The motor had compression. Um, all the parts were chucked into a dustbin and we took the bike and we took the dustbin and we went. Um, and for two years, it was between my place and Tim's place. Um, and friends bought parts from me for all over the world. So Joe, when you went to New York, yeah to visit family so long ago. Um, you came back with two side covers for anyone that's ever built a classic bike you'll know that side covers are like hen's teeth you cannot find them because they're one of the first things to fall off in an accident or they're one of the first things to go missing from a bike um, so i managed to find two in new york that i had delivered to joe and he brought them back for me um, there was also like this crazy little uh, clutch uh, retainer ball bearing on the clutch that I could find nowhere um, and eventually I found one overseas and then my mate Rick Hanna Dirty Dirty Dicks Motors he sent me some parts um, very kindly and slowly but surely it all came together um, and I had it painted to the original color that it was supposed to be um, which is sure. I think great. called I think it's called Candy Gold um, or something like that but yeah it's a 1973 CB350 with an all original 47,000 kilometers on and it's licensed and registered. And it obviously took a lot longer to get together, but for our first wedding anniversary, I gave Liesl the papers because your first wedding anniversary is paper. Um, and I gave her the papers to the bike and that was um, our, uh, our gift and, or my gift to, to her. And um, it took a little bit longer then to get the bike ready for yeah. it to ride. And then when it was ready, uh, she was very close to, um, to having Gemma. So she hasn't ridden it yet. Um, I need to rebuild the clutch, I think, before her little wrist will be able to oh, pull that clutch. Um, yeah. But very soon, once Gemma's kind of um, kind of less, slightly less dependent on us, then maybe we'll get a chance yeah. to teach her how to ride properly. Liesl, it'll be cool to see you on that bike soon. Um, I look forward to that. Um, it is a beautiful, I love that paint job very much. Um, I remember that first day out shooting photos of it. I was like, that's a great looking bike. So well done, Al. Um, Thanks. Oh, it's been good fun. Al, you know the drill. Got less than two minutes left. Um, so I think we'll wrap up. Um, Thank you for being the last guest for the first full week of shows, not the last guest. Season one. Um, yeah, see, yeah, season one. 
um, I'm looking forward to a little gap in the shows, um, take a little breath. Um, it's great to, to chat to you, Al. And everyone, thank you so much for hanging out with us the past seven weeks of this show. Um, there's still a lot more to come. I've still got a lot more people on the list who will be on the show through the rest of the year. Um, it is our intention to continue doing the shows throughout the 2020. Um, so yeah, it's going to be fun. Uh, we've got an online store coming out next week. Um, we will update you guys as soon as we can about rides and about the bubble run. Um, it does seem like the bubble run will happen. So the dates are on the website, you know, the 12th through the 16th. And um, you can catch this episode on Apple Podcasts tomorrow. And we're doing a competition. We can win a Bell Custom 500 and a Motul Classic t-shirt. So, Al, anything else? No, all good. Thanks, guys. It was fun. Cool. Cheers, everyone. Have a great Take weekend. Care.